but first, you know, when you meet someone who likes stat, the way you know they really, they're a real stat fan, they say, oh my God, I love the podcast. So here are absolute <laughs> rock stars. Please Uh-oh. welcome to the stat oh, stage, <laughs> Damien Garde, Allison DeAngelis, and the one and only Adam Forrester. Oh boy, here we go. Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. Nice. Very nice. I'm Allison DeAngelis. I'm Adam Forestine. And I'm Damien Garde. So when you're listening to this, it's probably Thursday. We are recording this from the STAT Summit live in front of a studio audience. On a Wednesday. Yeah, I guess we could do that. Right. In exactly. this room, you yeah. know that. Um, so this week, we will talk about some recent news in Alzheimer's disease and um, a story that we, I feel like we're going full like Christopher Nolan in timeline, a story that you haven't read in the room because it publishes tomorrow, but you listening to this tomorrow can see well, we've already read, read the story about a different Alzheimer's drug. We can get into that more. Um, some highlights from the conference and whatever questions you so we're going to start with um, who watches the Great British Baking Show? Show of hands. Show of hands. All right. So if you guys saw last week's semifinal, you know that, and I hope I'm not giving too much away, but you probably should have watched it by now. Shabira, one of the finalists. She's one of us. She is a computational biologist, and her showstopper was... Allison. A crocon? I think that's crocon, how we established it's pronounced. A Swedish dessert. Yeah made of almond flour. Yeah, and shaped to look like a DNA strand, a double so we, helix. We, we just felt like we had to talk about this because Allison and I both watched the show on Friday nights and yeah. I'm texting her, she's texting me, <laughs> and I'm like, did you see the showstopper? It was the, D- the DNA helix. <laughs> it's really, it's a beautiful like little moment when I can just text Adam, computational biologist, yeah. and he gets it. And if you notice, Shabira, because she's a pro, she's baker, pro. and also in, bio, in biotech, she got the she got the the direction of the double helix correct. It is a it is, as we know is a right-handed twist, uh, and that is I think a right-handed twist. So she got that right. So. Um, so let's uh, if, if you guys are fans of the show, with the final is Friday, so um, maybe we should take a poll about who we think might win. Yeah, we have our- Personally, I think Janusz should have been the finalist and he's not Sandro. So who thinks that Sandro is going to win the Great British Bake Off? Show of hands. hands. Look out there, a few. Wow, okay. Abdul, (laughs) who thinks Abdul is gonna win? Our producer, like Teresa. One person. Abdul's in great because he's like- is, been, is rooting for the underdog. Abdul's Teresa's been under the, the radar the entire, yeah. the entire And Shabira, last. You're the computational yeah, biologist. See, I think that's I think true. she's going to steal it. Yeah. Okay. All right. So <laughs> Now that get, we have right. confused Damien. Yeah, Damien <laughs> doesn't watch the show, so he has no idea what we're talking about. <laughs> no, but I do applaud the decision to have both an image and a show of hands in a podcast, <laughs> yeah. which is sound, famously. It is sound. Um, so if we if were Joe Rogan, we would be up here right. smoking a yeah. blunt and having it on YouTube. Yeah. So we're not doing that though. Well, okay. Adam's secret dream 
is to get us to actually video record no, the podcast. No, that is not my dream. No. Tweet no. at us if you also want a video component. No, there will never be a video. <laughs> there will never be a video podcast. Um, all right, let's move to let's move to actual biotech topics. Yeah, let's uh, switch Damien. gears to this story. I mean, like, to what's happening in Alzheimer's. David, I woke up sent well Monday morning. I woke up at one a.m. in the morning. I got a phone call from Roche about their Alzheimer's data. But you can you can tell us what happened, and we can talk about that. Sure. So as people probably know, Roche had a treatment for Alzheimer's disease in pivotal studies, and it didn't work. It did is, not work. Is the important. Uh, part, but as I think we've all learned from decades of Alzheimer's drugs that turn out not to work, there are a multitude of ways in which something cannot work, and there's a multitude of things you can learn from the exact failure. So in this case, um, Roche had two phase three studies to test whether an amyloid targeting treatment called gantanirumab could, over 18 months, um, outperform placebo at, this is always difficult to articulate for me, slowing the cognitive decline that accompanies Alzheimer's disease, not stopping or reversing it, obviously. And it did not do that. Um, the actual numerals were like 6% and 8% yeah. um, relative to placebo in each of the studies. I think the way they were designed, it would have needed to be upwards of 20% to reach statistical significance. So like truly did not work. But the curious thing, now that we live in a world in which one amyloid treatment appears to have worked, lecanemab, which we'll, we'll talk about more from ASI and Biogen, is picking apart what can we learn from the study, specifically the design of the study, that might inform what does work even mean? What is happening with amyloid? Roche didn't disclose how much amyloid the drug cleared from the brains of people. But amyloid, said that it was less than they had Less than they expected. So I think anticipated. I have a, yeah, lower than expected. That could mean anything. Um, without delving deep into what amyloid is, of course, it is a leading hypothesis that this plaque that is found in the brains of people with Alzheimer's disease is actually causative for the effects of Alzheimer's disease. Long been debated, long probably will be debated, but the Roche study going into it, I think the reason this is notable is the differences it had from previous failed studies, particularly that it was longer, that it was uh, a subcutaneous treatment versus an intravenous one. There was, I wouldn't say necessarily optimism, but I feel like there was a healthy curiosity that maybe the differences in this trial design might end up successful, and they didn't. It did not, yeah. No. Was, is this, I might be getting this wrong, but isn't um, uh, for not lecanemab, one of the other drugs that's in development, isn't um, one of the other companies also working on another subcutaneous administration? Right, so there is a subcutaneous version of lecanemab. That's right, yes, that, that yeah. was for lecanemab. Right, that okay. our, our friends at ASI are uh, moving quickly to try to develop, to demonstrate that it works as well as the intravenous one. And in part, that was a defense, I think, I mean, I don't know, but that was perceived as kind of a defensive move because as Roche moved forward with a subcutaneous treatment, that seemed like it might be a market leader if all things were uh, to work eventually. That's clearly not gonna happen with gantinarumab. So, I mean, it, it's, it feels uncomfortable to call the failure of a clinical trial good news for anyone, but with respect <laughs> to the market positioning, this is obviously good news for, for ASI. Yeah. And, and speaking of ASI, and, and the audience here will get a sneak preview of this story uh, that uh, we were publishing tomorrow that you and I co-wrote along with our colleague, uh, Jason Mast. Uh, it is a, I don't know, how would you describe this story? It's a... It's an uncom well, uncomfortable... It's 4,000 words. <laughs> it's 4,000 words. So I would describe it as poorly edited, but beyond that, it's a, it's a novelty, I think, for us. So many, as I mentioned, Alzheimer's disease studies have failed, and we've embarked upon 
journalistic endeavors to figure out how and why. And this is the first time that one seems to have clearly succeeded. So we embarked upon the much easier, because people yes. are willing to speak about success more so than failure, uh, trying to explain why did ASI succeed when so many others had failed. And there's a lot of answers to that. And but... the story sort of starts in Sweden, and it goes to Tokyo, and then it goes to Cambridge, and then it goes to Nutley, New Jersey. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, a, it's a global it's story true, yeah. now, that we you... are telling in 4,000 words. Um, but it's a, it's a good read. Um, there's some really good anecdotes and little stories and little nuggets of things that we found out talking to people about how they managed to get this drug approved. Um, yeah. my, our boss, uh, Rick Burke, actually offered to fly me to Tokyo. He's like, Asai, Japanese drug maker, go to Tokyo. <laughs> Um, I ended up going to Nutley, New Jersey instead, which is a lovely yeah. suburb in yeah. northern New Jersey. Um, it's the Tokyo of the New Jersey. It's, it's, it's like the Tokyo, Tokyo of, of northern New Jersey. New Jersey. It's uh, yes. very nice. Didn't go to Tokyo. Yeah. <laughs> now, I remember at one point while you guys were reporting the story, Adam, you, you told me this little anecdote about like going back to when um, Biogen and ASI were negotiating over this drug yeah. and actually that Lecanemab was not what they were interested in. So the, 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 the partnership between ASI and Biogen over this drug was signed in 2014. And what was interesting about learning about this was that they actually had no interest in lecanemab. They were actually interested in another drug that ASI was developing for Alzheimer's. And when the two companies got together to form this collaboration, ASI insisted on basically pairing. They said, if you want our other drug, you need to also partner on lecanemab. And internally within Biogen, there was actually a big debate about that because they were already developing um, aducanemab. And so there was this big debate about that. Um, there's a very good, uh, well, very good, I should say it's a funny um, <laughs> anecdote about the Biogen executives going over to Tokyo to sort of seal this deal. And one of the Biogen executives, who sort of a former hippie, was wearing a $30 Jerry Garcia tie, if you know those sort of boldly, the graphic, bold graphic ties. Um, they're having this nice dinner. Uh, and after the dinner, the, the very sort of prim and proper uh, ASI CEO um, says to him, I really like your tie. And he took the tie off and he gave it to the, the, the ASI CEO. The ASI CEO then took off his tie, which was a $200 Hermes red silk tie, much nicer tie. Um, that Biogen, that former, now former Biogen executive still has that, that red silk Hermes tie in his closet. He actually sent me a photo of it. So. Which one do you think was the better you know, tie to get in that exchange? <laughs> <laughs> well, the better end of the deal, both in terms of the value of the tie and the long-term value of the collaboration is obviously Biogen, because they <laughs> had an Alzheimer's drug of their own that has uh, had travails and is, is, is on the wrong side of history, and they get this sort of third wheel thing in lecanemab that they, not grudgingly, but sort of had to be coaxed into accepting in the first place, which now appears poised, and we don't know many things, but appears poised to win FDA approval and conceivably yeah. succeed where Adjuhelm didn't and maybe make billions of dollars yeah. for Biogen basically because they relented and, and Jerry Garcia. And from the HI <laughs> perspective, the other thing that was interesting to learn, and um, this was a, a story uh, for them, it was, they considered lecanemab to be unfinished business, is what we were told. And because mm. of that, um, if you remember, and I actually didn't remember this, back in the late 1990s, they actually developed Aricept, which was the first symptomatic treatment uh, for Alzheimer's. And um, 
soon after the launch of Aricept, they really believed that they were on the cusp of developing multiple medicines for Alzheimer's, and they were going to do that relatively quickly. It took them 25 years. Yeah. That's relatively quickly. This story will be out tomorrow. If, yeah. if yeah. you want to wake up at 4.30 in the morning, it'll be on the website. Um, you can read it then, or you can read it when you wake up. Yeah. I've seen Adam and Damien going through these 4,000 words uh, here while at the summit. It only reads like 500 words, so <laughs> well, at, well written and edited. So. I would read at least 2,000 yeah. about the Jerry Garcia tie. We so. should have put some, like, a little quiz at the end to see people who get to the end of the story. <laughs> um, but we've, you've been doing this while here at the summit, which has also kind of you know delved into a lot of biotech news. I mean, of a particularly hot topic is everybody's favorite piece of legislation, the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, we did hear from some executives <laughs> talking about that, yeah. Which, we got a lot of different takes from executives uh, about this act. Which do you guys feel was the most like resonating over the last couple of days? I personally like keep on thinking about Ken Frazier's statement that we kind of, he was like, we can't have an external force dictating how we price our drugs, that we will just not be able to live in this world and develop good medicines while under that kind of constraint. And I think he followed it up with saying, you know, we need to kind of come to the table and figure this out. And my, my immediate reaction every time that I think about that is, well, why haven't we come to the table? Why, <laughs> why are we now, after this legislation has been passed, still talking about coming to the table and figuring this out? But there have been, I mean, executives here who have said that the IRA isn't going to interact, you know, in, interject with their pipelines. Yeah, it's, I mean, to your point about, obviously drug companies bristle at anything that constrains um, their ability to do their business as any like sector does. But it's been a talking point for so long, I can recall Brent Saunders making this point, like yes, mm. executives of yesteryear, Ian Reid, like you can just imagine this like sepia-toned in memoriam <laughs> Oscars segment, and they would say, pre-President Trump, pre-whatever, if we don't police ourselves, they're going to police us, and there would be various talking points and, and even proposals for means by which the drug industry could, if not necessarily constrain its pricing, then at least do something to constrain the backlash to its pricing. And now we fast forwarded to, I think it's fair to say, the policing of ourselves has not yeah. necessarily taken place. And now the cops have come, apparently, in the form of this bill. And so I just, it's just like the same rhetoric. I don't know. It seems unfair to, especially Ken Frazier doesn't even work at Merck anymore. Um, I don't know what the solution is, but it does feel like a can that gets kicked down the road rhetorically for years gone by. All right, let's go to questions. I can see our, oh, I got the thumbs up from our producer, Teresa, in the audience. She's like, this is going to go on way too long and I have to edit <laughs> this podcast and I don't want to do that because I'm tired. Yeah. So the secret, you know, behind how the sausage is made any is question, that anything, ask away. <laughs> if you don't have questions, we'll edit this part I out. Say we will so edit out the yeah. begging for questions. Teresa. Somebody ask Adam about wearing jackets. I mean, come on. I'm wearing a jacket. I never do that. <laughs> Ah, we have a question. Okay, I was talking with a neurologist last night who was saying that he suspects that um, amyloid is more like cholesterol in that if we look at people who are younger and we see a buildup of amyloid, that might end up having a really positive effect if we reduce amyloid in terms of their risk for Alzheimer's. But 
it's sort of a surprise that we've seen any medications work when you're treating people who already have Alzheimer's. Mm. Is that something, what do you think about that? You cover the industry. Is that something that we're gonna be thinking about in the future? Yeah, I think people have been thinking about that yeah. in, even in the present in that, you know, like I said, every failed Alzheimer's trial is a chance to like dissect a disaster in search of hope. And quite often the answer has been to go earlier with anti-amyloid medicines. And that, you know, I mean, the, the joke quite often is that many of the amyloid faithful would like to put it in drinking water because of this notion. But I think what's been vexing is, is one, people who don't have any symptoms of Alzheimer's disease but have detectable amyloid, mm -hmm. there have been studies and, and you know, you could criticize the trial design, they might have used the wrong molecules, that have been not quite positive in actually demonstrating a clinical result there. But also, I get, cholesterol is probably a good example. Amyloid can accumulate in your brain over a number of decades. So we still don't actually really know when the right time to intervene would be. It's possible that that would work if you followed those patients for 25 years to find the outcome of who developed Alzheimer's and who didn't. And that's just the kind of study that I mean, no one has really embarked upon for, I think, more practical reasons than scientific ones. We have a question over here. Go ahead. We have a question over here. <laughs> Hi, I'm Daniel. Uh, you clearly have great um, experience with each other and, and great show. We don't get to ask questions about but. You but. No, no, but. Yeah. but. We don't get to ask questions live very often. Oh, since you've known each other. What's the biggest disagreement you guys have had amongst each other? Oh, wow. I think the idea to do a live podcast. Yeah. <laughs> no, I don't know. I don't know. Bringing oh, some spice. That might be it. Um, what is the biggest disagreement that we've had? I mean, maybe our disagreements come not on the show, but you yeah. know, we, what we do is usually on Wednesday morning, we get together on a, well, we get together on a Slack call and um, plan the episode. Um, and I don't think we fight about what no. we're going to talk about, but there are some times where like somebody will suggest a guest and we're like, no, I'm not doing that. Like there are certain people that we're like, well, we don't want to have, you know, like, so like that's maybe where it comes out a little bit. Like we try to, um, I mean, but ultimately we, you know, we, we sort of hash out what we're going to do and um, we try to keep it spontaneous, but we also try to um, have some kind of roadmap for every episode. So yeah. we're not just rambling, <laughs> we also, which we're I, doing now, but we try not to do that. I think, I mean, I remember, I mean, you, with you and I, Adam, like some of the pieces that we worked on together, like we have very different writing styles. And there's been times where it's like, we haven't thought about it, but I've just been like, oh, I've got to close slack and like not, like not just not go through this writing process with Adam yeah. for like five minutes. I mean, it's, it is interesting, right? I mean, and this getting away from podcasting, but it is when we write together. Like yeah. Damien and I have written so many stories together. I feel like we can, maybe he's, maybe he's disagreeing with me. I do feel like we can sort of write, we can write each other. We, we sure. sort of, yeah. you know, but like when you bring in a new person to write with you, then there's, it's kind of like a relationship. You have to sort of get to know them yeah. and their style. And, and sometimes it doesn't mesh. And that's where the editors have to come in. Like, it's just, you know, it's a, it's a relationship thing. Yeah. We do have another question if you want to get out of this. Yeah. One. Go ahead. <laughs> so um, my name is Mary Ann Snow, uh, Escara Biotech, and I just launched a biotech. Congratulations. <laughs> it's a big feat. Maybe. <laughs> uh, and so we just celebrated our one year anniversary. We're coming um, out of the COVID madness 
um, uh, VC is, the VC community has a, a little bit of an allergy right at this particular point in time. Mm -hmm. Yep. Any advice? Oh gosh. I mean, I will, I guess, take the first stab at that. There are, I mean, uh, it's no secret of the venture capital world that it's kind of about, I mean, you know, connecting it, tapping into your existing network. I mean, that's the, the interesting thing with VC right now is that there is a lot of funds that have been raised. There's still a lot of unspent cash. VCs are kind of working through, you know, like how much of that they're actually going to be able to call upon and invest how much they actually give to their existing portfolio companies. I've been hearing about a lot of really early stage startups that are turning to partnership deals, collaborations, where the upfronts are much smaller than they used to be, but that's just kind of the best way to go right now. And gives then hopefully on the back end a little bit of reassurance of, oh my, hey, they partnered with so-and-so and that deal went well, so you know that gives you a little bit more of a, a boost to your uh, reputation. That's that's what I'm hearing about in the industry right now. Hey crew, we have a question back here from Ooh. Joshua Finkelstein. Hi, I have a question. This is a general journalism question. Um, we've heard even today where in the middle of a discussion saying, oh, do you remember five years ago when I wrote that your company was in a total free fall and had no prospects? <laughs> um, how do you navigate? I think that was me. Yeah. 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 How, how do you navigate writing you know, the truth, your opinion, all these kinds of things, what's happening at the moment, while still trying to have working relationships with all these people high up. It must be really tricky where one year you say, oh, this company's mm -hmm. done, and the next year you're like, I was wrong, it turns out. Or So just curious, any personal anecdotes or any just general strategies? How do you navigate that? I mean, that? My, my general view, and I tell companies this, is that um, these are long-term relationships. Uh, I've been writing about biotech for two decades. And, and I'm going to write about you when things are going great, and I'm going to write about you when things are not. And that's just the way that the business works. That's the way companies work. Not every company is always going to be ascendant, or you know. So you take the good with the bad, and like that's how you, you know. And and I think the best relationships are the companies that understand that, you know, and they realize that that is the way the way it works. Yeah. No, I think that's pretty much the gold standard. Mm. There and are not not all companies think that way but you know yeah we have a question this uh, they're worried that this question will be disruptive so i said to definitely ask mm. it, Do it. Oh. <laughs> um your opinion on the insulin price and uh, like the whole debacle that followed with the fake tweets yeah <laughs> oh man i mean i you know it's easy for me to say i thought it was pretty funny <laughs> uh, I didn't lose any money. I didn't have to go to an emergency meeting that I imagine took place in Indianapolis as to how to respond to it. I don't know. I think, and I appreciated what uh, David Riggs of Eli Lilly um, said about it and the difficult position that, that puts him in, but it did feel kind of, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what, trying to be empathetic, I don't know what I would advise Eli Lilly, the sort of massive corporation, as to what to do in that moment when you know someone I assume rushes into a room to explain to someone else that like we're being mocked or mercilessly on the internet and also that mockery has turned into condemnations of our business model and like you know I don't know opinions about like our immortal souls we have to do something but then the something is like the the actual corporate Eli Lilly tweet that followed it it was in English 
And, yeah. <laughs> and it communicated a statement. But then again, it was funny to me, but imagining what would I write if I were in that position, I truly have no idea. Yeah. I'm... Yeah. It's kind of it's kind of amusing that it took a bio or a pharma company to create the chaos that changed the whole like part of the business plan for Twitter. I kind of um, take pride in the fact that our industry did that. <laughs> um, and I know my, my first reaction was also kind of chuckling, but then when I was looking back at one of the tweets where, God, what was it the, that the fake account said, like, insulin is now like $400 a vial, that I might be getting that number wrong, but I was like, wow, $400 is still a lot of money. And that was like the cheap, you know, price on a tweet. So it's, uh, this certainly doesn't seem like anything new that I would imagine is happening inside of the Eli Lilly headquarters. I wonder, I mean, maybe seeing an unfiltered stream of the kind of posts on the internet that you wouldn't see uh, if you were a social media manager at Eli Lilly when like Twitter let loose the floodgates of every angry person in the world, maybe that was instructive in some way. Maybe there's a, there's a silver lining to this. There's a silver lining. I think, I think we have one time for one more. And we All right. One more right here. One more. Someone you know. Hi there. Oh no, not him. <laughs> Yesterday, Adam was dutifully doing his job as moderator on stage when he was talking to one of the companies about their successful financial uh, record. Mm -hmm. And the answer was one of the best answers I've heard yet. And I'm interested in your feedback as whether or not this is the kind of way a company should talk about their financials and their patients. We've always viewed our financial success as a proxy for the number of patients we treat. That to me, it's not a proxy. It seems to be directly correlated. But wow. the, the answer was, I don't know, a good one for a way for a company to talk about their money and patience in, uh, in your environment. What do you think? So more of a comment than a question in some ways. Well, I guess they were talking about what? I honestly, when you do... When you do these interviews up here, like this was vertex. You also like don't process what people are saying. So it's hard for me to remember exactly what I think they were. You had asked about like all of the money that they've made and what they're going to do with it, mm -hmm. um, you know, because they've got a pretty big cash reserve. And so I'm assuming she's talking when you was Reshma talking about mm. uh, Trikafta and you know, what they've been able to make from that and the other cystic fibrosis drugs. I mean, it's, it's kind of funny that it does seem like such a novelty of an answer, given that it's, it's simple math. <laughs> that, that, you know, the, the money that you have correlates to the number of patients that you've successfully treated. I, get, I think I get the impetus of the question, though, which is that drug companies are always very uncomfortable talking about the money that they make because it, like, mm -hmm. begs the question, that's not what that phrase means. It underlines the unstated thing of, like, well, it's, numeral of patients, numeral of dollars, the multiplier there is cost of drug per patient, which is something people don't really like to talk about on Twitter or otherwise. And so I don't know if it's necessarily an artful dodge. I guess it's, I don't know. I, I, there's some kind of boot camp perhaps that could happen for people who work in the drug business of figuring out how to talk about this in a way where it doesn't feel like they're always sidestepping this very obvious thing, which is that money is changing hands and that the price is set mm -hmm. by the person talking quite often. I don't know. Do you remember, this was Tuesday that you had this conversation. Yeah. <laughs> it's been a long, it's I know, been a long like week. Between like Summit and this, yeah, you know, ASI week. story, 
Do you know that we're taping a podcast right now? Yes, I do. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm actually looking at the script to see when we're, where, we're, where we're like, oh, yeah, we got to do the ending. Yeah, yeah we got to wrap it up, everybody. OK. All right, we're going to cue you. You guys are going to cheer in a second. So this is how we do the ending of the podcast every week. All right. That does it for another episode of the Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Empanado and Alyssa Ambrose. Our executive producer is Rick Burke. And our theme music is by Brian Joel. And we... <laughs> yeah. There's more. Shout out to Brian Joel. <laughs> and we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and whether this was the worst idea we've ever had. <laughs> you can do all that by sending us an email at... Stat up. And read out loud. Read out loud at so I should know the email address. And no. if you like what we do, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcast. Smash that like button. Smash <laughs> We will see you next week. Wow, we did it. Good job. Good we job. did it. Did you want to go this way? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>